0: Welcome aboard the Coastal Connection. I'm Jennifer Ritter Guidry, your guide for this trip through Louisiana's coastal wetlands. You
1: said you wanted to talk about the nutria?
0: Yes, on today's podcast we'll be talking about the nutria, that most wanted of Louisiana's invasive species. We'll begin with a quick visit with Shane Bernard, the archivist and historian out on Avery Island here in Louisiana. He'll explain the McElhenney urban legend regarding the nutria and how it was released into the wilds. After that, we'll hang out with Jennifer Hogue Manuel, a wildlife biologist with Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. She manages the fur furbearers program and is going to explain the trapping workshops that they do and all their efforts in trapper education, as well as the nutria control program. And finally, we'll wrap things up with Cree McCree, the founder of the Righteous Fur Design Collective. She'll explain their attempts to turn the Nutria fur into a fashion commodity. So get comfortable guys because on today's episode we're going to talk about the Nutria, fact, fur, and fashion, and tea. So my name's Shane Bernard and I'm the historian and
1: curator for the Avery Allen Archives, which in turn is made up of the McElhaney Company Archives, the Avery Allen Incorporated Archives, and, and a, a few other collections. And so I spend all of my days uh, collecting documents and artifacts and uh, organizing them and, and retrieving them and interpreting them and that sort of thing. The family has been here for over 200 years, so they've generated quite a bit of material. Unfortunately for me, they seem to have kept most of it and not thrown it away. So I've got quite a bit of material going back over two centuries
0: now. I know, and I love that about the archive. I love that you have, you know, these vast corporate records, but you also have personal family libraries as well. So you have, I think, a great balance there.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of diaries, a lot of photographs—not just professional photographs, but snapshots, uh, film, audio recordings. Um, you know, the earliest film we have goes back to 1900. Earliest audio recordings go back to the 1940s. Uh, we have over 15,000 photographs cataloged, and that is not even the entire collection. There's still a lot of cataloging to be done of photographs. And it's not just Tabasco related stuff. It's regarding the island in general. There's a lot of Native American history. You know, there's over 50 state registered archeological sites on the island. Most of them prehistoric. There's a Indian mound on the island that's been radiocarbon dated at uh, 4,500 years old, which if true makes them as old as the pyramids in Egypt and uh, there are historical archaeological sites here too like a few uh, uh, sugar mills from the 19th century and also the birthplace of
0: Tabasco sauce on the west side of the island. Talk about um, the nutria and your research and efforts to dispel the urban legend that the McElhenney's were responsible for releasing the nutria into the wild here in Louisiana.
1: Um, I guess it was in the late 1990s that I realized that uh, E.A. McElhenney's personal records were so well-kept that if, that he had a Nutria folder, but if it, was, if it was folder 118 in 1938, it would be folder 118 in 1939 and 40 and 41 and so on. So it was very easy for me to just go out and pick out the the bulk of the nutrient material in our holdings it took like five minutes and i've got you know the first 10 years of references to it in my hand and i could see that the the documentation produced at the time back then in the 30s and 40s didn't entirely correspond to what i realized at that time was a myth that was being repeated in even not by word, not only word of mouth locally, but in major national and international media sources like, uh, you know, National Geographic, Smithsonian Magazine, and then Washington Post, and so on. Um, so the myth was that E. A. McElhenney had single-handedly introduced Nutria to Louisiana, and sometimes to all of North America, and had single-handedly introduced them to the state's wild because during a hurricane in the early 1940s, the wind blew down the nutria pin and the nutria accidentally escaped. What I found using these documents was that EA was at least the third nutria farmer in Louisiana. Uh, because the state of Louisiana, the, the, uh, the Wildlife and Fisheries Department, which at the time was just called the Louisiana Department of Conservation, um, was actually encouraging people in Louisiana to try bringing in nutria. Uh, it was encouraging Louisianians to, it, to buy nutria and grow them in the state because it would be good for the fur industry, which was a big industry, uh, throughout the coastal parishes and elsewhere in Louisiana, including this area. And so, um, anyway, EA was at least the third nutria farmer in the state and at least the second to let them loose in the wild. Now, on a couple of occasions, uh, reporters have said, oh, this guy, Shane Bernard, who works for the McElhennys, he's just trying to absolve them of any responsibility. For the, for the matter, you know? But, but actually that's, that was never the case, you know? And in fact, someone even wrote one time that I had been hired solely to do that. But I didn't work on this Nutria project for several years after the McElhinneys hired me, and it was my idea because I ran across the papers. And in fact, what I found was that the Nutria had not gotten out accidentally during a hurricane, rather EA McElhenney had let them go on purpose a couple of months before this hurricane in summer of 1940 and the reason he let them go on purpose was to bolster the fur market and in the next fur season sure enough local fur trappers uh, who lived on and around the island began to catch nutria in the wild because they breed more quickly than rabbits you know mm-hmm. and um, but that being said, he was not the only person in the state doing that. And there were people after him who also got into raising nutria in the state. I know that later in the 1940s, EA's nutria farm on the island began in 1938. In the 40s, there was one that started up uh, near Homa. So that would be at least the fourth nutria farm in the state that I know of. And then the state of Louisiana itself let go a lot of nutria, uh, near the mouth of the Mississippi on a state wildlife reserve where it actually, it actually allowed seasonal hunting down there. And so it's, the idea was that these sportsmen could, you know, shoot these nutria and then, and then get some money from their fur, I suppose. Yeah, the story is a lot more complicated than the myth maintained, although as is typical, there there were, you know, there's a
0: little bit of truth to the myth. Have you had any personal encounters with nutria? Not so.
1: So much on Well, the odd thing is you rarely see them on the island anymore. I mean, and they tend to come out around dusk. So you know, on rare occasion, I've seen one or two swimming in Jungle Gardens. More likely, I see them swimming in the canal along the highway leading to the island. But the place where I tend to see them the most, just in my own life, is in City Park in New Iberia. There's a little pond called you probably know it, Devil's Pond, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a little walking bridge that goes over it and Um, Around dusk, it's not unusual to see a nutria or two, and um, uh, Morris Raphael, the late uh, writer in New Iberia, wrote a children's book about a nutria or some nutria that lived in City Park, Uh, Mm -hmm. so that's, that's how well known that is.
0: All right, so now that we've got a handle on the origin of the nutria, let's turn to Jennifer and learn more about the animal itself, how it's become such a threat to the Louisiana coastal wetlands, and what we're doing about it at various levels, and how you can get involved.
2: Well, Jennifer speaking.
0: Hey, good morning, Jennifer. This is Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> hey, how are you? Hang hey, no, on one second. Let me to close my office door. Yeah, sure. All
2: righty.
0: Wow, so if you have to close your office door, that means you guys are in your office. <laughs> no, there's, there's, like, maybe six people in the building,
2: and they're they're all around my, my corner at the moment, so, oh. <laughs> yeah, we are officially closed and mostly working from home, but um, I have to come in a couple of days a week at least to,
0: to feed my baby alligators, so. Oh, oh, yeah. I love the baby alligators in the front. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Our lobby gators. So, sure, my name is Jennifer Manuel and I am the fur bear biologist for the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries. Yeah, yeah, here in the United States they're commonly known as the nutria. Um, in the rest of the world uh, they're frequently re- referred to as coipu. Um, that's due to their scientific name, is Myocastor coipus. So uh, their nutria is usually a, a kind term that refers to actually their pelt so here we call them nutria and the rest of the world they call them koipu but they refer to the pelt as a nutria
0: so why do we call it a nutria rat sometimes what is that all about
2: (laughs) that's just local colloquialisms i mean they are a rodent a member of the rodent family um and so they and they do resemble a very large rat even though they're not in any way closely related to rats, as we know them in the scientific world, but they do resemble a rat, and so kind of local colloquialisms—you know—they they call them the Nutria Rat.
0: Okay, all right. I mean, like that tail kind of looks like a rat tail, right?
2: Yeah, that long hairless tail—you uh, know
0: it does look like a rat tail. And mm-hmm. I'm an—you uh, know—I grew up here in Lafayette. I was born here in Lafayette. The first time mm-hmm. I saw one was in the ditch outside. Uh, uh, along Johnson Street, in front of the Acadiana Mall. Yeah. <laughs> Which that I was just. All right. You know, yeah. We have, them, uh,
2: we have nutria and Lafayette and Gerard Park. Yeah. So we see them in the ponds in Gerard Park quite a bit. So they're around.
0: But they're not at Cypress Lake at on the on the UL Lafayette campus, are they? I haven't noticed them there. Uh,
2: I I don't know. They do have quite a few alligators in there that might kind of keep them away.
0: The Nutria Myocastor koipus is a large semi-aquatic rodent. The generic name is derived from two Greek words, mice for mouse and castor for beaver, that translate as mouse beaver. The specific name koipus is the Latinized form of coipu. Coipu came from the language of the Araucanian Indians of south-central Chile and adjacent parts of Argentina. Coipu refers to an aquatic mammal that was possibly this species. But in most parts of the world, the animal is called coipu, and in North America, the animal is called nutria. In the rest of the world, nutria is the name for the fur. In Louisiana, it refers to the fur, the animal, the meat, teeth, all of it. But at one point, they were considered um, something of an economic boon to the state, correct?
2: Sure, yeah. No, Nutria are not native. They are actually uh, from kind of southern South America, Argentina uh, area. And uh, they were brought here into Louisiana sometime in the 1930s or so. And at that time, uh, 1920s, 1930s, Louisiana's economy was, you know, the fur production and fur trapping was one of the biggest parts of our economy at that time. We had 20,000 licensed trappers in the state. There were 2,000 fur dealers operating in the state. It was one of our biggest economies. Um, you know, and at the time, Louisiana was a very, you know, subsistence culture, you know, live off the land, you know, people would shrimp and fish in the summer and then go to their coastal camp in the winter and trap all all season. And one of my favorite stories from one of my trappers, um, you know, that, that helps us out during uh, trapper education classes, he tells us this story back in the, um, of his dad. His dad was a teacher, and uh, during Christmas break, for those two weeks during Christmas break he would trap fur. This was back in the 60s and 70s. And for those two weeks that he would trap fur and sell that fur, he made more money doing that than all year as a teacher. (laughs) And so this just gives you an idea of how valuable the fur was to Louisiana at the time. And so, um, you know, entrepreneurs and members of wildlife and fisheries at the time who just didn't kind of know better, thought well we need more fur trapping, we need more fur options for our trappers Mm -hmm. so wouldn't it be great if we brought this animal from Argentina, it reproduces like rabbits, they reproduce really quickly (laughs) they have a really nice fur we could bring them here, you know, we can try fur farming them and you know, see if we can farm them for fur as a kind of supplemental to our fur industry Uh, well the Fur farming didn't really work out. They had some some issues trying to keep them in the pens. We have hurricanes. We have frequent flooding. Uh, Nutria have big teeth, and they like to chew, just like any other rodent. So they would get out of their pens. And in some cases, when the fur farm just didn't work out or the owner of the fur farm decided that he didn't want to be in the fur business anymore, he would just let his nutria out. And so they would get out by escaping. They would get out because they were let out on purpose. And in some cases, some of the managers for coastal WMAs, uh, wildlife management areas, you know, thought, well, wouldn't it be great if we just purposefully introduced some nutrient to these areas so that our trappers have another animal to trap,
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know? And at the time, of course, they were trapping very, very heavily uh, our native species. So this was another animal that would give them something to pursue. So, yeah, a lot of different ways they kind of got out into our landscape.
0: Nutria are smaller than a beaver but larger than a muskrat. Unlike beavers or muskrats, however, it has a large, round, slightly haired tail. The four legs are small compared with its body size. The four paws have five toes. Four are clawed and the fifth is reduced in size. The digits are used to groom and to excavate roots, rhizomes, and burrows and are used in feeding. The hind foot consists of four webbed, strongly clawed toes and one unwebbed toe. The hind legs are large compared with the forelegs. Consequently, when moving on land, the nutria's chest drags on the ground and its back
2: appears hunched. They thrive in pretty much any kind of environment where they've got lots of, you know, green vegetation to, to eat, uh, grasses, marsh vegetation, uh you know, they'll live in people's ponds on cattails or on their just grass. Um, you know, they, they can live in kind of marshy habitats that that flood or flotant top marsh, but um, they'll also live in more upland or drier habitats as long as they've got access to water. So they're a semi-aquatic rodent, so they need to have um, some access to water, and then they need that vegetation to eat. Um, We'll see them sometimes in the swamps, but not as much. Um, You know, they tend to seem to like the little bit more open areas with more grassy vegetation. Uh There's something about that kind of, that marsh right in northern Terribone Parish that they seem to really uh, reproduce quite a bit on. Um, And, you know, we do aerial surveys where we'll see just masses of nutria. So I think it's just that they have kind of the right... uh, their favorite types of vegetation just tend to grow there in, in Northern Caribou Parish, so the perfect kind of mix of marsh plants, and uh, yeah, they they do very very well there.
0: Do they have like familial units? Are they like like meerkats?
2: Yeah, they have um, family groups. Um, they're they're not as social as meerkats or as muskrats. Um. But they'll kind of live in these family groups, you know, the, the mom and her kids. Um, the nutrient out in the marsh will build these platforms, these little round discs kind of made out of woven vegetation. And they'll congregate on these, these little platforms, groom each other. They'll huddle together in the cold weather to stay warm. Um, but they're not living in these, um, you know, extended family groups. Uh, they're a little bit more territorial than than that um, to kind of tolerate uh, other members that are not part of their immediate family. Okay. They do. Yeah. <laughs> they do make a noise. It's, it's um. They they usually call it a moo. So they make this kind of mooing noise. Um, yeah. We, we used to keep uh, nutria, live nutria down in the New Iberia field office because we have uh, some pens there. At one point, they were doing research on nutria and various things there. And so, uh, you know, you drive up to New Iberia and hear just this, this mooing noise, you know, coming from the pens. So they're, they're actually
1: quite vocal.
0: So the teeth. What are the purpose of those big, iconic orange teeth of theirs? <laughs> the
2: teeth, yes, nutrient teeth. Well, like any rodent, you know, think back to pet rats or rats that you might have had in school, or guinea pigs, or any other rodent um, or beaver. Um, rodents have these these long teeth for grazing, for eating vegetation. In the case of beaver, they're they're eating wood and. and pulling bark and cutting trees so these teeth are really a tool to these animals to to dig up vegetation to um you know cut through the vegetation so just like any rodent the teeth grow throughout their lifetime they just continuously grow and they'll wear down those teeth uh, through chewing through digging through um cutting down trees or whatever it is that they're they're doing they wear down these teeth over their lifetime so um They'll constantly grow and, uh, and and wear them down through that process. Yeah, when you look at them, I mean, I guess one of the things I kind of notice when I look at a nutria is that they're, they're kind of awkward looking. They're, they have this big hunched back and these long hind legs and these really, really short little stubby front legs, and they kind of look awkward. But then when you get out in the marsh and you're driving around in a, a boat, you know, watching them run, they're very, very fast, very agile animals, and then watching them swim in the water, they're incredibly agile and fast swimmers as well, so, um, you know, they, they might look awkward from the surface, but they're, they're really neat to kind of watch move around because they're quite, they're a lot faster than you would think. Positive contributions of the nutria. Well, as far as the ecosystem goes, I can't think of any. Um, they don't really focus in on noxious weeds or invasive plants. They, they much prefer our native plants. Um, they don't really provide a food source for anything. I mean, eagles might take the, the kits or um, and then alligators might eat a nutria occasionally when they can catch one, you know, or when one can kind of stumble in front of their mouth. But, um, you know, there's really not much good that they provide the environment. Um, their, their benefits are, are all just kind of really born from, you know, their economic benefits to people. You know, that's what they were brought here for originally. And uh, they still provide an economic benefit to the people in some respects in some areas of the state. They were brought here for the fur trapping industry, and, uh, you know, as long as that industry was strong, the trappers really managed to control the nutria. So from the 1930s all the way into the 1980s, we really didn't have a lot of issues with the nutria because the trappers were able to keep them um, under control. And, you know, we have fur harvest data dating back to the 1940s or so. And we know in the 60s and 70s, Nutria were the most harvested fur bear in the state of Louisiana, with over a million Nutria being harvested by trappers every year. But in the 1980s, the fur market essentially crashed, um, and that's due to changes in fashion. People were wearing more leather instead of fur. Uh, It was also due to animal rights. You know, groups like PETA, the people for the ethical treatment of animals, had a lot of money and a lot of... Uh, will to kind of try to destroy the the fur market and um, the, the market essentially crashed and a lot of trappers were kind of out of the business, had to get out of the business. When that happened then we lost our kind of main control on Nutria and their population was able to kind of grow unchecked for 30 years. You know, and so at a certain point, we tried to figure out, well, we have this population of invasive nutrients that are growing unchecked. What can we do to, to try to control that? Because they're a major nuisance in coastal Louisiana. They're a, a herbivore that eats primarily our marsh vegetation. And anyone that kind of knows a little bit about the marsh knows that the vegetation is the glue that holds our marsh together. And without that glue, the marsh will just slide away into the ocean, it'll wash away and turn into open water. And that doesn't serve any benefit to, to the people of Louisiana. So in 2002, or just prior to 2002, an uh, effort was made to kind of come up with a project to control nutrient, and That's where the nutrient control program kind of started. And it is funded by QIPRA, Coastal Wetland Planning Protection and Restoration Act. So they found that they were doing all those coastal restoration projects out there, doing marsh plantings and building new marsh, only to come back a few months later and find that the nutria had come in and pulled up all of their fresh marsh plantings. <laughs> or they had just kind of taken over the, the new marsh and were eating the vegetation. And so all of their hard work and money was just going to waste. Um, because of the nutria so they decided to fund this project and it's a roughly three million dollar a year project um, to control nutria and how it works is we pay an incentive payment to uh, participants who are registered with the program so they get six dollars for every nutria that they harvest yeah no, when the program started in 2002 the original incentive payment was four dollars for every nutrient harvested. Uh, after Hurricane Katrina in two thousand five, two thousand six uh, season, they bumped it up to five dollars a tail. And uh, just to kind of try to bump up participation. And so the last few years we had kind of a slump in the in participation, so we decided to bump it back up to again to, to six dollars so that we can hopefully um, bring harvest back up to our, our desired numbers
0: and what are those desired numbers
2: so the program goal is to try to harvest 400,000 nutria every year so we have been averaging about 330,000 uh nutria every year and in the past few years it had slumped down below 200,000
0: everybody's just harvesting them for the tail and the bounty but nobody's really actually utilizing the meat or the fur. Yeah. Is is it not worth the effort that it would take for them to, you know, I mean it's one thing to cut a tail off and and store it, it's another thing to skin and butcher an animal, right? Yeah, and that's something that kind
2: of gives me a little bit of heartache to see all the waste you know, because these animals are being harvested anyway in order to save our marshes and to save our marsh habitats. And they have a very usable pelt. It's a very nice fur and the meat is very clean and usable as well. Very low in fat and cholesterol and and healthy. And so, you know, to see those two sources just go to waste is, is a little hard. So we try to work with our fur dealers. We still have a couple of fur dealers that operate in the state to, to try to try to find some markets for the fur and for the meat so that it, it's not just left out in the marsh. You know, we'll make gumbo, nutrient gumbo, um, for our, some of our trapping workshops. And, you know, people will be digging in saying this is the best chicken and sausage gumbo I've ever had. And, you know, I don't, well, no, I thought I told you that it's nutritious to that, to dark meat chicken or chicken thighs. So, I mean, There's there's not much uh, difference in a gumbo.
0: Can you put it in a sausage or what about, like, Nutria Boudin?
2: I've never had Nutria Boudin, but we've done um, Nutria Jerky before for shows. Um, I've had it ground up, you know, Nutria ground meat. Um, Chef Philippe Perola out of Baton Rouge does a lot of different things with Nutria meat as well as other invasive species, and, um, I've had him prepare kind of this, uh, I'm not sure what the name is, in French is, but essentially pulled nutria in, like, a brown gravy with mushrooms and onions, and, uh, you know, served on toast points, and, uh, it, I mean, it's delicious, <laughs> it's
0: All right. different ways, so. Um, let's talk about the, the fur, uh, or the pelt, sure. the nutria pelt. Sure.
2: I mean, uh, you know, back when Nutria were first introduced to Louisiana for the fur industry, you know, in the 30s and 40s, I mean, that was a time period where every woman wanted a fur coat, you know. But that was back before we had, you know, the synthetic fabrics for winter. You know, when it got cold, you wore either wool or you wore fur. Those were your two options for keeping warm. You know, we didn't have all these synthetic kind of plastic-based um Fabrics, you know, your nylon and, and, and everything, Gore Tex and stuff. So um, you wore fur, you wore wool. So, and yeah, nutrients were brought here for the fur industry because they have a very nice pelt. Uh, most fur bears have a pelt that's made out of kind of two layers of fur. So there's the downy kind of undercoat and then the long guard hairs. And so when you have a nutrient pelt, you can pull out or pluck out the guard hairs and just leave that very soft undercoat, and it makes a, a beautiful garment. Um, and we have several examples of Nutria fur coats in our, in our office, and uh, it, it makes a beautiful coat. Nowadays, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody wearing, you know, a full fur coat, but as far as the garment industry goes, Nutria fur is still frequently used for trim on other types of coats. So they might have a, a leather coat with a fur trim or a nylon, you know, synthetic fabric coat with fur around the hood or fur around the cuffs or a pair of boots with fur around the cuffs. So it's frequently used for that um, overseas or they, they'll use the, the fur as a lining inside of a coat or inside of a hat in, in very cold areas, you know, such as, as Russia or, or Northern China. Around here in Louisiana, we do have a few kind of entrepreneurs that are making an effort to use the fur in in other ways. You know, it can kind of, in a way, be billed as the ethical fur. You know, as we pointed out before, all of these animals are being harvested anyway to protect our native species and our native habitats. So you have a perfectly good fur pelt, you know, that's going to go to waste otherwise. So it can be kind of used, and hopefully people cannot feel bad about it. Um, so there's a, you know, a, a bag maker, Chop Industries in New Orleans, that uses all locally sourced products. So they make handbags, um, backpacks, and, and different things out of the Nutria fur. They also make koozies and other kind of fun things out of, out of the fur, um, which, is, which is neat.
0: So, yeah, so the fur itself, yeah, and one of our samples has, like, what they've done is they've made, they dyed the fur green and, like, kind of clipped it to make it resemble like an, like a furry, if alligator hide were furry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I've seen that, too,
2: um, you know, in areas, uh, we used to, um, you know, back when we had some money from the fur industry, we would go to fur shows overseas, so, the last one that the crew went to was in Turkey, and they would take the nutria fur and cut it, cut it and dye it to make it look like a tiger pelt or a leopard pelt, like these um, you know animals that can no longer be harvested because they're endangered and, and other reasons. But they can dye the fur and cut it to make it look like these expensive pelts from, from an endangered species, but it's not, it's it's nutria. These animals even alligators now are are their populations are growing to a point where they're becoming a nuisance in a lot of areas. So but, you know, animal rights activists are really putting a lot of money and a lot of effort to, you know, make people feel bad about harvesting alligators and um, you know, and the same thing with fur and fur trapping, there's just a lot of misinformation out there about what the trapping industry is. And, you know, we're, we're battling that, but we don't, the fur industry itself doesn't have nearly as much money as PETA does to, to, you know, put out this information. You know, what we want people to understand about the fur industry is, you know, when they did away with uh, using fur and garments, they just started using you know, either faux fur or these synthetic fabrics that are made out of plastic, you know, and that, those fabrics don't biodegrade. They end up in landfills. You know, faux fur might look nice for a year or two, but then when it gets matted or starts getting coarse, where does it end up? It ends up in a landfill, and those those little microplastic fibers that are going to end up in the water and in the oceans, you know, it, and it doesn't biodegrade. But real fur... I mean, a lot of people have their grandmother's fur coat. It still looks as pretty or as nice as it did 80 or 100 years ago. I mean, I have one of my my grandmother's fur coats. Um, You know, I took it to a furrier, had it cleaned up, repaired, and it still looks lovely, and I still wear it to nice events. I mean, that's something that's going to last forever as long as I take care of it. And even fur, if it does end up in a landfill, it is biodegradable. It's a natural fiber. So... You know, we're trying to make people understand that there's a difference between using real fur and using faux fur in these synthetic fabrics. And uh, you know, a lot of the garment industry is moving towards, you know, faux fur use. I've heard all kinds of terms, you know, animal-friendly leather, vegan leather. Um, it's just, <laughs> it's just plastic. <laughs> and you can argue about, you know uh you know effects of plastic and stuff on on animals and stuff but we won't go into that today but you know yeah i just people need to understand when they see things like vegan leather and animal-friendly
0: leather what it is um okay so i know you have dogs do they like the marsh dog treats
2: Yes, they have tried them. Um, <laughs> my dogs are not very picky, but they did <laughs> a very high-quality dog treat, uh, very high in protein, very low in fat. So, um, And it's also good for dogs that might have allergies, you know, because not have a lot of MLL fillers and all that kind of stuff. Um, so certainly people that are concerned with what they're feeding their dogs might want to consider Marsh dog, dog Treats just because it is a local company and they are making use of, uh, you know, a nuisance animal. So, you know, again, it, people can, can try to feel good about where the, the product is coming from. You know and it's uh, helping people understand that the other side of the story so you know like I said there's a lot of misinformation about trapping and the trapping industry out there you know because of these ad campaigns from animal rights groups and trapping not nearly what people think it is it's not the, the kind of cruel acts that people associate with it so you know it's one of the, another reason why we do Trapper Education with the department is we get a lot of people that come to the class that may never set a trap but they just want to see what it's about new things that we teach in the class to, to make it more humane and, and more animal friendly um
0: so mm-hmm. the nutrient control program the season runs what november to march is that correct yeah it coincides with our statewide trapping
2: season which is november 20th till march 31st
0: and how do people sign up for the Nutria control program
2: Sure. Well, first of all, they have to buy a trapping license. Um, If they're a Louisiana resident, it's $25. So it is a commercial license that's not included with um, the lifetime licenses that you buy from the department. So the separate license is $25, so they have to buy that. Uh, It is free to apply to the program otherwise. The applications are available on www.nutria.com. We'll post those on the website starting September 1st. So you can go onto the website, download the application in a PDF, fill it out, send it to us. All the instructions and everything on what you need and how to fill out the applications all in the packet with the application. But basically all you need is to fill out the application completely, have your trapping license, and you do have to tell us where you plan on hunting. And that could be property that you own or property that you lease, or it could be one of the many, many available public land properties that are listed on Nutri.com, and we've got probably 40-plus public land properties throughout coastal Louisiana that you can, um, you can sign up to, to harvest Nutria on as part of the program. And so the program, because it's funded by Quipra, only encompasses the coastal part of the state. So it is everything uh, south of I-10 from Texas to Baton Rouge and south of I-12, Baton Rouge to Mississippi.
0: Right, and that actually extends beyond, like, the traditional coastal parishes identified as a Quipper program. I counted it out. It's like 26 okay. parishes, so it's a few more than the, the typical 20, uh, 19, which I think is important to note because, you know, Lafayette Parish isn't technically considered part of the coastal zone yet we still see the impact of the nutria in a a Mm -hmm. couple ways so um i just want to backtrack and talk about all the trapper education that ldwf provides and how that feeds into um lots of activities um and and opportunities including the nutria control program
2: sure and um I'll start out by saying that if you're interested in any of our trapper education courses, it is everything that we do is listed on um, the Louisiana Fur Advisory Council website, it's louisianafur.com, and we do an online course. There's a free online course, which is great for people that are stuck at home right now. If they want to learn more about trapping, they can work through our online course, and it gives you a lot of great history and background information about trapping, information about our rules and regulations, and ethics and responsibilities as far as trapping and also goes over different types of trap and what they're used for and how to use them. So, you know, anyone that's kind of stuck at home and interested in trapping can certainly go to Louisiana for Advisory Council website, click the link, follow the link to the online course and work their way through that. And then starting in the fall and winter, uh, usually in October, we start our hands-on workshop. So, you know, it's great to kind of read up about trapping, but you really need to get your hands on a trap in order to learn how to set it, how to use it properly. So we do uh, several kind of one-day, eight-hour courses on on Saturdays, and throughout the state, and all of the dates and, and locations are, are listed on the Part Advisory Council website of when those will be scheduled. Anybody can sign up and attend one of those. They're free to come to. Uh, We provide lunch, and we give you a goodie bag to leave with to help get you started in in trapping. We offer those. And then in the spring, we'll usually offer two uh, trapper schools. So everybody that comes to our one-day Saturday workshops can come to one of our schools and that's a three-day workshop from Friday to Sunday, and we camp out at, at our Woodworth Educational Center in Woodworth, Louisiana. And people come, camp out for the weekend, and we run trap lines so everybody can bring their trap, run a trap line with our volunteer instructors who are all professional trappers and really get
0: hands on with the, the activity. I can definitely vouch for the workshop. And I, I, I appreciate that you call it a goodie bag. In reality, it's a goodie bucket. Um, <laughs> and it is, yeah, and it is so full of stuff. You get, I walked away with two traps, several different kinds of bait a couple tools, a pair of gloves, a, a screen for sifting dirt to cover up the traps. The workbook, some other things I can't—I just can't remember off the top of my head right now. But I mean, it's a goodie bucket worth of over a hundred dollars uh, worth of stuff inside it.
2: Uh, hunter education, trapper education, and not only just educating people, but retaining them into the activity. You know, we want to teach you how to trap, we also want to create lifetime trappers you know we want to create somebody who's going to do this every year Um, it's going to teach other people how to trap so we recognize that trapping is a very equipment heavy activity it requires a lot of tools and so we want to give everybody that comes to our workshop the tools they need to immediately leave the workshop buy their trapping license go home set a trap that night if they want to and hopefully catch something the next morning. You know, we get a lot of pictures especially from our younger attendees, you know, mom and dad'll send us pictures the next day saying, They set their trap last night, they caught a raccoon the next morning, and they're hooked, you know, you <laughs> created a trapper, you know, and I I love seeing that kind of the beaming faces of these kids holding up their first catch, you know, and just The look of pride on their face that they did this themselves. They set their own trap and they caught their own animal. You know, the pride associated with that. So, I mean, it's really rewarding to kind of help create this new generation of trappers going out there doing things the way that their grandma grandpa did years and years ago and our trapper our volunteer instructors I mean I cannot give enough props to them for giving up their time and coming and and passing on their knowledge to complete strangers you know we're very
0: lucky to have a great group of teachers yeah definitely I um I was really impressed with the number of young people at Mm -hmm. the workshop I attended in January as well as just like the diversity of the group in general it was yeah it was it was really heartening to see that and just the different things or the different animals that people uh, were interested in learning how to trap. Um, One young lady was there with her father because he had a lot of, he had a coyote problem on his property and she decided that she knew how to handle it, that she was going to learn how to trap coyotes. That young lady that you're speaking
2: of, she was one of the ones that we got the picture the next morning of, of her catch so,
0: <laughs> the next so, morning yeah, you know,
2: yeah it's it's, it's kind of wonderful you know we see more and more women coming to our, our workshops and that's really wonderful to to see just the diversity of, like you said ages races sexes coming to these these workshops and, and learning about this activity so it's 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 wonderful to see that and then hear people's stories. I love hearing why people are coming to these workshops. So I think it was at the workshop you came to where we had the young woman who raised show chickens, special breeds of chickens. And so she was having problems with bobcats and coyotes (laughs) and raccoons and things, eating her her chickens, her pet chickens, you know, these, these special breeds that she was spending all this time and money raising and then to come out and just see a pile of feathers the next morning and this animal that has a name and, you know, (laughs) that she has a connection to and just get eaten by a predator. So we hosted the first one that first weekend in March. The three day weekend, which was wonderful. It was one of our best. Uh, we actually had a veterinarian come from LSU uh, and come and talk about, he did a full autopsy and stuff and talked about trap damage. So it's one of the things we cover pretty extensively and in our workshops. People are always concerned about well, does the trap cause any injury to the animal or are they suffering when they're in these traps? And, you know, the truth is the traps are designed to not cause any injury. And I think you were at the workshop also where the instructor, Ryan, definitely his hand in the trap
0: yes I was so, you know, yeah yeah
2: you know he did it twice that day stuck his hand in in one of these traps designed to, to hold a coyote and so he's like these these operate like a pair of handcuffs they're designed to catch an animal and hold it securely but not cause injury and at the three-day workshop when we have a veterinarian come out and actually show everyone well here's a beaver that was caught in a foothold trap and there's there's no damage to the leg, you know kind of shows everybody you know what they're doing is the right thing. But yeah it was a, it was a great workshop. We caught lots and lots of animals, lots of beaver, a couple of nutria, uh, raccoons, always lots of raccoons. stands out the most, and this graph is on Nutria.com, but it's it's the graph kind of showing harvest throughout the program, and then the damaged acres. So every year, kind of as monitoring uh, with the program, we rent a helicopter, and we go and we fly the entire coastal marsh, something like 2,300 miles we fly, so we have transect lines that run the entire coast from texas to mississippi and it takes us about two weeks or so to fly all of those transect lines but when we fly them we can actually mark nutrient damage in real time come up with an estimate of damaged acres we have kind of observed damaged acres throughout the course of the program and just watching that number go down from you know the numbers that they observed just prior to 2002 the Eighty thousand acres of damaged marsh going down to below 10,000 acres, you know, at kind of the lowest point where we were harvesting the highest numbers of nutria as part of the program. So watching that that decrease and showing that, you know, we, we are making a difference in saving our, our marsh habitat by removing the nutria um, really stands out
0: to me. Yeah, there's these pictures, this one, that shows the normal marsh, the denuded marsh, and then an exclosure. Uh, walk us through what what that's all about. Sure, these were put out
2: right before kind of the program was instituted, and that was you know to kind of prove the damage that nutrient caused. So they they knew that nutrients denuded the marsh by eating the vegetation, so they kind of wanted that shock value that that picture that was gonna capture everyone's attention and really show like, hey, we need this program in order to, to save our marshes. And so they stuck out this little enclosure. So it's just a little uh, chicken wire pen that they buried kind of out into the marsh. And I think it was maybe six foot by six foot square pen, I mean nothing big or fancy or crazy, but it was enough to keep the nutria out of that little area. And so, all around that pen, all of the nutri- all the vegetation is gone. And you can see the little pathways, the little trails where the nutria were walking and eating up all the vegetation. And there's a little kind of uh, ditch, a little moat right around the enclosure where the nutria were clearly circling this fenced-in pen, <laughs> wanting to get inside to that vegetation but couldn't. Um, and so... They just ate everything else around it. And then the vegetation inside that little exclosure was just lush and green and tall and everything you expect our marsh vegetation to look like. But everything outside that exclosure was just mud. Was just nothing but mud and brown, dead vegetation.
0: When it first started in 1998, there were 170 sites that were observed with damage. And for 2019, there were 25 sites. So is it getting harder and harder to identify those sites? Is there any trend in where they do occur?
2: Not really. Um, Nutria, or even though they're kind of agile little critters, they don't really move around a whole lot. So they tend to have a really small, kind of restricted little home range where they tend to stick and just kind of spread out from that, that area as their population grows, they'll kind of spread out uh, away from each other. For the most part, a lot of our damage sites are in the exact same spots they were 20 years ago. So, you know, we have all of that kind of marked GPS point. We'll go and we can fly and visit those specific areas and kind of mark the changes year to year to those damage sites, whether they recover, whether they get back, um, whether they grow, whether they shrink, and kind of how they morph over the years. And we have that data that we keep track of. Nutrient damage is pretty easy to spot from the air. I mean, first of all, you'll generally see the nutria running around. We're flying pretty low, about 80 feet, 80 to 100 feet. So you'll see the nutria from that, that height running around, but you'll also see, you know, just like that picture of the exclosure, you'll see kind of the mud flats with the little round platforms that they've built. So you'll see that from the air and, and be able to mark it. And I always get kind of questions like, well, how do you tell the difference between nutria damage and feral hog damage? We also have a lot of feral hogs down in the coastal marshes. But um, the difference is feral hogs, when they're out in the marsh, it's almost like someone took a tiller to the marsh. They, like, pick up the mud and turn it over in these big clumps of mud. And the feral hogs only kind of damage these little spots at a time. So it almost looks like the marsh has chicken pox or something, these little spots all over. Whereas the nutria, it's like someone has a, a rash that's spreading. It just, it starts in one small area and just gets bigger and bigger and spreads out from there. And so it'll just keep growing that, that rash as long as the nutria are eating. So that's kind of the difference between the two different types of damage.
0: And there is actually a rash associated with the nutria. Yeah, nutria itch. Yeah, tell us about that.
2: <laughs> I don't know a whole lot about it. It's, it's um, some kind of a parasite that'll get under your and you know causes a lot of itching and so when you're in an area where kind of the nutria are desiccating a lot it's something that you can get from just being in the water so swimming in a body of water where the nutria there's a lot of nutria or walking around in the marsh in shorts without you know boots on can can expose you to that it's something to kind of be uh, aware of nutria itch so don't don't walk around the the marsh and your bare
0: feet <laughs> yeah is there anybody in the nutrient control program that participates in the program that really stands out to you like what's the like the largest haul of tails brought in or do you have one trapper who's been with the program since the very beginning or you know are there any other things that really stand out yeah i mean we have
2: about 400 people that register with the program every year, and there's a, a few regulars that names that I recognize every year. People that have been doing it since the very beginning, or there's a few folks that they go out and they do they participate in this this activity with their entire family. So the wife, the kids, everybody, they're all going out and they collect a lot of nutrients. Some people that have you know thousands and thousands and thousands of acres of private property that they lease from some of these larger land companies. So I mean, every year. It, it can range. There's some people that'll turn in as few as one or two nutria, and then there are always people that'll turn in twelve thousand or you know fifteen thousand nutria that they've collected with their families, so or friends. So yeah, it doesn't really surprise me. You know the level of harvest. I mean, some people this is their this is their job. You know, this is what they do. This is a large part of their income. So they might shrimp during the summer, and they harvest nutria during the winter. I don't know. I'm kind of partial to the nutria. As problematic as they are, you know, I also just really find them fascinating. All of the culture and the stories and the history and everything surrounding the nutria. And it is kind of where I started with the department. You know, I'm partial to kind of the nutria, Nutri-Control Program. I do find some of the other species I work with. Interesting bobcats are fascinating once you've got to kind of start learning a little bit more about them. And of course the spotted skunk, you know, it's such a cute and interesting little animal and they have a lot of really neat behaviors and they're so secretive. It's just amazing that we could have them here in Louisiana and just not know it because they're just so secretive.
0: The Righteous Fur Design Collective attempted to take the Nutria fur and turn it into a commodity for the fashion market. We'll hear from founder Cream McCree herself and hear about her experience in trying to introduce the Nutria into the fashion market in the modern age. Yes, my name is Cream
3: McCree. I live in New Orleans. I'm the founder of Righteous Fur, and I also manage uh, a couple of different um, art and costume markets. I manage what's now called uh Piety Market in Exile at the New Orleans Healing Center, which is an art and flea market. So I've got, uh, and actually, one of our, our artists, Kate McNee, still has some Nutria slap bracelets. So she occasionally sells those. And I also uh, run two big, big costume sales uh, with uh, top local designers, one, for, one at Halloween and one at Mardi Gras. Like most things in my life, Righteous Fur came about as a real serendipitous, uh, fortuitous chance meeting. So I had this whole background of recycling materials into fashion. And, but it was only when I got to New Orleans that I became completely immersed and inspired by New Orleans costume culture. So I started, you know, making my own headpieces and costumes and putting on fashion shows and raiding my vintage racks for piece bits and pieces. So I was in the middle of producing this big fashion show at an art gallery here called Bio Rematable. It was fashion harvested from the lands and the wetlands of uh, Louisiana in the Gulf Coast, and I challenged a group of designers to take, basically to take natural materials, people use everything from banana leaves to Spanish moss, people use bones, and and while I was in the process of putting this show together, I met a guy named Michael Massimi, who was the uh, invasive Species Coordinator for... uh, Uh, the organization Barataria Terrebonne National Estuary Program, BITNAP, which is based down in um, Terrebonne Parish. So, uh, uh, he, he, he was very fascinated by what I was doing. He said, would you like to throw some nutria into the mix? Well, I said sure. Why not? My only experience with Nuccia up to that point had been years ago, when I was down here for jazz. I took one of those swamp tours between the two weekends, and, and uh, it was very typical on a swamp tour. There would often the, our our particular tour boat captain or the, the who's driving the boat had a, a pet Nuccia. And
0: so my first introduction
3: was kind of, oh, is that a cute little furry creature. Um, And Michael got me a bunch of pelts and kind of explained, you know, he kind of explained a little bit about the, but really at that point I was going about it totally as fashion. I mean, all right, here are these pelts. He said, hey, I've got a little basket of teeth. You want me to put those in the act? And I said, sure. So, um, I, my, I used the, I, I created my first ever, it wasn't even called Righteous for them, but I created my first, like, nutrient-trim product for this particular fashion show, and I also created the, this jewelry that I ended up, a whole jewelry line using nutrient teeth. that's very elegant. So, that show was a great success, and, uh, people were like, oh, where do we buy this stuff? And, uh, at this point, um. Michael came to me and said, well, you know, BitNEP has this grant program. I think you should apply for a grant. This was in the fall of 2009. So 2010, I applied for one of these grants from BITNAP, um, which was, and he, he also, but this time, he had explained to me why I, you know, why my, why I should apply for a grant, because it turned out that Nutria were not these just these cute little swamp tour pets. <laughs> they were actually these marsh marsh munchers. When, this was in 2010. At that point, it was tens of thousands of acres of wetland every year. The, the numbers were shocking. And the thing was that uh, the, the, the state had, it was beginning to come under control, but Michael thought if uh, I could develop like a real fashion line that could use all these byproducts of that, except, uh, all these trappers and hunters were killing the New gyps- Cutting off their tails, taking them to tail stations, that they are there. basically you just pitch, most of them just pitch the cor- corpses rather the corpses back into the bayou. Which, like, so I mean, you know, there was no there was nobody was really doing anything with all these dead nutria. So to not just cut off the tails, but to take you know to, to take the uh, actual nutria to be processed in 2010 um i found it and trademarked i just had to renew my trademark this month uh righteous fur and as as along with our our logo and our our um motto which is save our wetlands wear marnitia so i recruited several different designers it started out with maybe five or six and eventually grew to over 20 different designers uh, eventually in lafayette as well as in new orleans who participated in this program And at that point, there was a guy named Tab Petrie in Galeano, Louisiana, who ran uh, uh, petries, alligator, and fur. And their main business was gator, but they also did a lot of fur-bearing animals, and they they were processing nutrients. They were making nutrient greens there. He would hire these shippers in their off-season, and they would turn... The, um, after the, uh, the, they brought the nutrient bodies in, they turn them inside out on these like long boards. It's called boarding, and they would scrape out all the inside. And then these boards would get oiled and hung in a, a hot room to kind of. So the, the first time I got my first batch of pelts from Tab, it was these long, sort of hard, kind of hard cylinders of of dried nutrients. They're called <laughs> green. <laughs> There was a little bit of a market for it then. Um, you know, well, to have this wife would go out sometimes in the morning and they just buy them right off the boats. So we had this little supply chain. We held our first big Nutria Palooza in New Orleans in January of 2011. they Always Lounge, they were putting on this show um, because there's this people, the people that live here, there's a real love hate relationship with Nutria. They, you know, they, they hate that they're destroying the wetlands, but they're also, you know, some of them have them as pets. And, in fact, our, a guest at our very 1st New Nutri-Palooza was Boudreaux, who was at that time, he was like, he was the mascot for the Zephyrs baseball team. Okay, we'll have him be our greeter. So our, that was our greeter. And <laughs> it was a really big success. And, and we had Tab tree and Michael Massimi came up and did a little Q&A. And, with the fat. and then we had a band. Um, our own little band that had a, that wrote their own song called. This is when it was still five dollars a tail. <laughs> <laughs> so they did five dollars a tail, and, and then we had the fashion show, which was the main event. And they were spectacular designs. I mean, some of them some of them were very, very you know avant or like Alexander McQueen stuff, and others were more traditional. Like we um, had some beautiful new leg warmers and vests and so forth. And afterwards, we had an auction, and we sold quite a bit. So we were off to a great start. Another nietzsche at the Ogden Museum of Southern Art here in New Orleans. And from that, we did the show in what was a, a, in a Bushwick neighborhoods in Brooklyn. That It was still a bit of an outpost. But I've got to tell you, it was not easy to find a venue in New York, because the people in New York were still like, ooh, fur and they didn't Mm -hmm. want to hear the story about how this is, you know, this is an actually, you know, this is an actually very eco-friendly firm. These nutrients are being killed anyway because they're destroying our fragile wetlands and we are just recycling a product that would otherwise go to waste. Um, So, it it was a good story that we had to tell and we, we set up a booth at, at, at a fairly new, at Brooklyn Fleet, but um, so I thought we were going to make a killing there because, like, you know, Louisiana and we had really like, you know, I had my Nutria Teeth jewelry and we had all these really cool Nutria Trim fashions. And, but honestly, the response we got from people in the city who don't live close to the land was, ooh, sure. It's like, you know, at that point, it was so, ew, fur, like for any kind of fur. They didn't want to hear the story. People were just like, they, they did. And we, the only, and, and uh, some people bought the teeth because that was like, that wasn't fur. And the following spring, we did our first Tripalooza on the Bayou. That was uh, Becky Schexnider. At that time, she was Becky Owens. And we had, that was, that was a wonderful show. It was, you know, once again, it was a kind of a, it was a big success except for the fact that it was, it turned out
0: being the same day as the um, LSU Bama game. Oh no. <laughs> then, oh, no. Oh, my
3: God. But I'm proud to say that we had sold the show out before that, and people actually came. So we got the second grant, and the second grant we specifically set out to really target, like, big-name New York designers. A friend of mine who runs a graphic arts department at Loyola Actually, made it an assignment for her, her students one semester to create some kind of presentation that we could send to big name designers that wouldn't just get lost in the mailroom. That somebody might actually look at it. So the winning design turned out to a cardboard box that folded out and had all this information about. You know about Nutria and the wetlands and all kinds of stuff, but it was it was like it was like recyclable cardboard. And inside the box there was a little um, uh, a booklet with photos of some of the some of the things that we had done with the Nutria. So little mannequin torsos. We we took those and we wrapped an actual Nutria pelt around that. So the idea was that you know designers are very tactile people. Mm-hmm. They work with fabrics all the time. If you could get people To actually feel that, and we sent them two. We sent them uh, a pelt that was half of it was sheared and half of it was natural uh, pelt. Sheared pelts are um, especially beautiful and lustrous and soft, they're really beautiful. You know, regardless of whether people wanted to buy righteous fur in New York in 2010, I mean, we were way ahead of our time. I mean, if we had done it now, I think you know, if we had been doing it now, it'd be another story. So at this point, Righteous Fur is like in a state of animated suspension, although I just renewed the trademark. mark. Meanwhile, Rodents of Unusual Size finally came out about a year and a half ago. We have righteousfur.com, which is not you know, all that freshly updated, but you can see some, you can go back and look in the photo gallery. There's lots of really great stuff in the archives and check a look at the press clips. It's, it's impressive, there's some good video clips in there too. And uh, we also have a Righteous Fur Facebook page,
0: And that's it for today's episode. You can always check out our website for more information and links to resources about the topic. You can always check out our Facebook page as well as our Spotify playlist. We always have a playlist to accompany each episode. So if you haven't had enough nutria, you can just slide on over. Thanks for hanging out with us today and learning more about the invasive species of nutria here in Louisiana. This podcast is brought to you by the Coastal Wetlands Planning, Protection, and Restoration Act. The Quipper Program is a federal legislation program enacted in 1990 designed to identify, prepare, and fund construction of coastal wetlands restoration projects. Since its inception, over 200 coastal restoration or protection projects have been authorized. For more information about the Quipper Program, find us online at lacoast.gov. Become our friend on Facebook or follow along in our Instagram adventures at quipra underscore outreach. We want to know what you're thinking. What are your questions and concerns about the coastal wetlands of Louisiana? Drop us a line on social media or email us directly at cwppra at gmail.com.
2: The views and opinions expressed on this or any program on the AOC Podcast Network do not reflect the views and opinions of Lafayette Consolidated Government, Fox Communications, LUS Fiber,
1: AOC Community Media, its Board of Directors, or its staff. To learn more about becoming a community media producer, visit us on the web at aocinc.org.